Welcome to the Forensic Files. I'm Dr. N. Today, we will be talking about serial killers. What makes a serial killer? What are the developmental aspects that most serial killers share? How do we distinguish between serial killers and mass murderers? And what are some common myths about serial killers? Serial murder is generally defined as instances where someone kills a number of people separately at different points in time. There is a distinct cooling off period that doesn't exist for mass murderers. Most people define serial killing as the murder of three or more individuals over a period of time, though the FBI's technical definition defines it as two or more victims. James Reinhardt first used the phrase chain killer in his book, Sex Perversions and Sex Crimes, in the 1950s. They referred to killers who left a chain of victims behind them. The first person to use the term serial killer isn't really as cut and dry. Historically, there are two individuals who use the term, claiming to do so independently, though I'm not sure how much evidence there is on that note. I'll leave you to decide for yourself. John Brophy used the term in his book, The Meaning of Murder, published in 1966. FBI agent Robert Resler, allegedly independently of Brophy, claims to have used the term in the 1970s to refer to a serial movie motif. You can see the term's creation play out in the way that Resler alleges, though highly fictionalized, in Mindhunter. Historically, there are recorded instances of serial killings as far back as ancient times. It is not something that just plagues the United States, though. There are serial killers all over the world. The nature of crimes, though, has changed over the last hundred years. Up until the 1960s, only 5% of murders in the United States were committed by strangers. Most murders were committed by someone the victim knew, or the perpetrator had some ulterior motive or gain for the killing. By the 1990s, murder by strangers grew to 23% of all murders in the United States. Though, to be clear, this is of reported cases to the FBI where the murderer was identified. At that same time, 49% of murders were unaccounted for. The relationship was not known, whether because the killer was never identified or the relationship was never established one way or another. The classic nature versus nurture arguments abound about serial killers. Are they born or are they made? Neuroscientist Dr. James Fallon has spent his career studying the brains of psychopaths. He found that all the psychopaths he studied had some sort of damage to their brains, specifically the orbitofrontal cortex which is what many scientists believe control ethical behaviors, moral decision-making, and impulse control. 
Along with that, he also found damage to the interior temporal cortex. The orbital cortex can have effects on the amygdala, which affects aggression and appetite. So if our orbital cortex isn't functioning correctly, that may be a sign that we have sustained a brain injury or were possibly born that way. Dr. Fallon also found that a majority of psychopaths he studied were male. They possessed a high-risk violence gene called MAOA, which is linked to the X chromosome. He found people with this MAOA gene in utero were often exposed to too much serotonin, resulting in a stunted reaction to it later on, which made it harder to control anger and engage in productive stress relief. So what's the tipping point? Well, Dr. Fallon found that witnessing violence in childhood seemed to be the turning point for these behaviors. It turns out that all of these factors can occur independently without resulting in murderous behaviors, but the catalyst is experiencing a traumatic, violent event in early life. The MAOA gene needs that catalyst to be expressed. Apart from these genetic findings, there are other developmental aspects of serial killers beyond what Dr. Fallon identified through his studies. Most serial killers grew up with dysfunctional family lives. They were often abused or neglected. Many also grew up in poverty and without a father figure. If the father was present, he was usually a source of abuse. Children raised in this type of abusive household are more likely to respond to stress with violence because that's all they know. It's the model they grew up witnessing and they have no concept of how to cope in a healthy way. There is a pattern of isolation and loneliness in the serial killer's childhood where the serial killer falls deeper into the fantasies that they create. This isolation further feeds into an endless spiral of anger and resentment toward others, which just isolates them further. The fantasies that they create are often tied to police work, which for them is the embodiment of control and power. Many serial killers have had ties to police, either working as an officer working with law enforcement, or working in occupations tangential to police work. To gain the trust and control of victims, a number of serial killers posed as officers. There was a widely held belief that the Golden State Killer may have been a police officer or had similar position or training, because he always seemed to be one step ahead of the investigators. This belief was substantiated when Joseph D'Angelo was arrested, and it was found he worked for the police at the time of some of the killings. He had access to a police radio and could easily know their movements and plans, and in a pinch, he could have probably pretended to be part of the search party if he were caught fleeing the scene of the crimes. Ted Bundy, another example, worked for the Crime Commission in Washington State. 
John Wayne Gacy owned a police radio that he kept in his home. And Dennis Rader, also known as BTK, impersonated a detective on many occasions. The last developmental aspect is the serial killer's need for complete control. Without it, they're powerless. The fantasies they create only feed their needs for so long until they have to kill to satisfy those urges. Every murder helps to refine their fantasies, which further refines the subsequent murders. So as the killings progress, the fantasies improve. And as the fantasies improve, the killings also improve, becoming more structured and efficient. I guess practice makes perfect, even for serial killers. At this point, I would love to dispel some common myths of serial killers. The first myth is that serial killers are all loners who do not fit within society. Unfortunately, there are many examples of serial killers who hide in plain sight. They have families, are married with children, and engage with their communities in a seemingly productive way. The ability to blend in makes it a lot easier for them to go undetected and unsuspected, furthering the likelihood that they will be able to kill again. The Golden State Killer had a family. He was a police officer for a number of years before being fired and lived within the very community he terrorized. BTK was also married with children. He was a Boy Scout leader. He had a government job and he was president of his church. This particular myth might make us feel like we have power in the face of horrible serial killings, that we have the power to identify serial killers because they are loners on the fringes of society. It's hard for a lot of us to accept that we could know or be friendly with a serial killer and never know it. It is downright terrifying to think that we could have met one or know one now. That feeling of helplessness and uncertainty is not one that most of us want to live with. So I guess psychologically speaking, it's easier to think of serial killers as outsiders. The next myth is that all serial killers are white men. Though this may be the predominant demographic, there is representation from both men and women, and many different racial groups. The racial demographics of known serial killers is pretty analogous to the distribution of the population of the United States. The next myth is that serial killers are purely sexually motivated. This is not the case. Some other motivations include anger, attention-seeking, money, and thrill. Richard Angelo was a serial killer who was motivated by the need to prove his ability as a nurse. He would purposefully cause respiratory distress and then show off his skills by reviving patients. Unfortunately, he wasn't so good at this, and he was found responsible for 25 of his patients' deaths. The last myth I'd like to dispel today is that serial killers can't stop killing. 
There have been instances of serial killers not murdering for decades before their arrests. The Golden State Killer and BTK are pretty prime examples of this. Now I will preface the Golden State Killer discussion with uh, that we are still in the midst of the trial and I'm working off of the information we have now, but for the knowledge that we have up until this point, it, it doesn't seem that he killed after 1986. Not that we've been able to connect, at least. So the Golden State Killer is believed to be responsible for at least 13 murders, at least 50 rapes, and at least 120 burglaries. It is possible, again, that more crimes could be connected to him in the future, but from what we know at this point, he was only active between 1974 and 1986, before being captured in 2018. There could be a number of reasons why he didn't kill anyone else after 1986. This could include age and physical ability. I think that's the most popular theory out there right now. But more may come out during the trial, which, again, is ongoing. If there are any updates, I'll make sure to let you all know. BTK murdered 10 people between 1974 and 1991. He didn't kill anyone else before his capture in 2005. An FBI study suggests that these killers may find another outlet for their emotions, some may have moved away from the original location of the killings, which might have served as part of their fantasy or ritual. Some stressors that they were having at the time may also have dissipated as well. This is the thought behind the Green River Killer, who murdered sex workers during his first two very stressful marriages, but after his third marriage, that was a lot better for him, the killings seem to taper off significantly. The age debate is a strong one. Testosterone levels, performance capacity, and the prey drive all decrease as men age. Historically, there are far fewer rape murders over the age of 50. And at the end of the day, they're all theories, since no systematic study has ever been done to identify the cause of the stopped behavior, and some of these killers were never even caught. In the final section of this episode, I want to discuss the phases serial killers go through prior to and following the actual murders themselves. They don't necessarily have to follow a particular order and not all serial killers will exhibit all of these phases, but they have been identified as common elements to serial killer behavior. This information will also set up the discussion for next week. There are seven phases in total. The aura phase occurs before the murder, when the killer begins to withdraw from reality. The length of the aura phase can vary widely and can be triggered by an extended and prolonged fantasy period. Excessive alcohol and drug use is quite common during this phase as an attempt to self-medicate. The trolling phase is when the killer begins to stalk a potential victim. 
The wooing phase occurs when the killer tries to woo or win the attention and comfort of the victim. Ted Bundy would often pretend like he had a broken arm in an effort to seem disarming and in need of help, playing on those maternal instincts of the many young women he targeted. He would lure them away from the public eye to his car so he could overpower and abduct them. The capture phase occurs when the victim is incapacitated and there is no hope of escape. This can be done with a number of different methods, ranging from binding someone's hands and feet to drug dosing them until they're unconscious to locking someone in a room. The murder phase is just what it sounds like, the act of the killing itself. It is a ritualized act of killing the victim, which is highly dependent on the killer's fantasies, needs, and physical location in some cases. The totem phase occurs if a killer wants to keep something to remind them of the killing. It can consist of taking items belonging to the victim, taking photographs, or taking actual parts of the body. The totem helps the killer relive the experience, which can help stave off the depression phase. The depression phase can occur after the killing, when the satisfaction from the act of killing is no longer present. The theory being, when the depression phase overcomes the killer and the power of the totem wanes, they'll start planning to find another victim. Thank you so much for listening to episode 7. Next week, we will continue the discussion of serial killers. I'll cover the serial killer typologies and dive into a couple lesser-known cases to better illustrate these typologies. You can listen to the Forensic Files on the website at the-forensic-files.captivate.fm which is linked in the episode notes. You can also listen on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, along with many other platforms. You can find me on Instagram at theforensicfilespod. And please reach out if you have any questions, corrections, suggestions, or requests. The email for this podcast is the forensicfilespod at gmail.com. I would really appreciate if you could leave me a review so more amazing people like you can find the podcast. You can find all the episode content, including scripts and sources and recommended readings, at the Google Share doc, which is linked in the episode notes. All episode content was researched, written, and produced by me, Dr. N. All music you hear in the episodes was written and produced by me and classical composer Jeffrey Young.